0: You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Monica Guzman. Monica is the Director of Digital and Storytelling at Braver Angels, a nonprofit working to depolarize America. And as some of the regular listeners will know, John R. Wood Jr., who is uh, one of the... um one of the chair people at Braver Angels. I'm not sure what his exact title is, but one of the main people there, uh, has been a guest on this podcast uh, twice, actually. Um, I talked to him about his own um, background um, in one interview, and I also interviewed him and Rod Graham about the um, the George Floyd um, protests. So... Um, Um, we are big fans of Braver Angels here at Two for Tea, or I'm a big fan of it. And, uh, Moni is also, um, the, she is the co-founder of the Seattle newspaper, the ever, the newsletter, the ever gray. Um, she has, uh, served twice as a juror for the Pulitzer Prize. She plays Dungeons and Dragons, which is probably the most <laughs> unusual thing about her. And I was delighted to learn when reading the book that, like me, she likes dogs, hates cats, <laughs> and she prefers Star Trek to Star Wars. <laughs> um, and uh, Monica is also the author of the um has is it out yet your book Monica or is it still forthcoming? It will be. It will be out March eighth, twenty twenty two. Okay, great. The currently forthcoming, if you're listening to this in December, uh, book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. So I invited Monica on to talk about her book. Welcome, Monica.
1: Thank you, Iona. I'm really, really excited to talk to you today.
0: Thank you. So I often begin these podcasts by reading a passage from the author's book, um, or asking them to read a passage. But authors seem to enjoy hearing other people read their books as well. So <laughs> yes, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and read a passage for you. Um, and this is one of the there are many moments like this in the book. There are a lot of there's a lot of generalisation in the book about specific techniques that you can use to create better conversations. Um, and we'll talk more about that, I hope, in a moment. But one thing you also do is use personal stories in an extremely effective manner. And this is one of my favorites, or one that I personally most related to. So you're talking about what you call attachments, which are things that Pull on us and influence us to think of ourselves in a certain way and to feel that we should hold certain opinions and views, um, among other things, because of who we are, because of our identities. You write, it's easy to see the influence of attachments on other people. They feel pressure to be Democrats because they're black, they feel pressure to be Republicans because they're religious. It's harder and more important to notice and be honest about the attachments that influence you. I learned this the hard way when my mom called me out on a big attachment, a bad one, that made me turn against one of my biggest values, telling the truth. The day after the 2020 election, and before I joined the staff at Braver Angels, I gave a talk at a well-attended Braver Angels event about how I'd watched the election results with parents who voted for the other guy. I talked a bit about our background, how we'd come to the U.S. from Mexico, and how we were marking 20 years of being citizens that year. When Braver Angels shared a link to the video of my talk in their newsletter that weekend, they included this passage. Her parents brought her to this country. They are Mexican immigrants who have experienced the hardships of building a life from scratch in the United States of America, and they voted for Donald Trump. As soon as I read that, I cringed. My parents did not experience hardships building a life in the US, and in my talk, I never implied that they had. As immigrants to a whole new country, my parents had a new culture and set of customs to navigate, sure, but they were a well-educated, upper-middle-class couple in Mexico who were fluent in English and had the resources they needed to make a smooth transition. Their biggest struggle those first few years in the States was missing their friends and super tight-knit family. I didn't blame braver angels for assuming that we'd had the kinds of hardships Americans often associate with Mexican immigrants. Lots of immigrants from my native country do struggle. Loads. In a way too few Americans understand. Plus, it's not like there are tons of stories out there filling out the true wide range of immigrant experience the stories of struggle get the spotlight, as I think they should. Now, honesty means everything to me, especially when it comes to people. I had nightmares daily in my beat reporting days, terrified that I might have misunderstood a key detail in that day's story, or forgotten to check some lazy assumption of mine with the source. So after I saw the Braver Angels newsletter I opened an email compose window and drafted a message to a friend at the organization, asking, gently, if they could delete their part about hardships. I moved my mouse cursor to the send button on the window, then moved it away. There's such a strong assumption out there that all Latino immigrants share an experience of hardship that it's become an expectation, I thought, not to mention a big source of empathy for Latino immigrants who do struggle, were some of the most vulnerable Americans around. Do I really need to stand in the way of that expectation? I asked myself. And doesn't it win me more empathy? A small crooked voice in me added, if I don't? What's the harm, really? If people choose to believe this one tiny little lie about me, isn't it better overall to let it go? Right then, my phone rang. It was mom. Did you see the newsletter? She asked in Spanish, breathless. They said we struggled. We didn't struggle. Not at all. You didn't tell them we did, did you, Moni? Have you told them to correct it yet? You're going to get them to correct it and tell the truth about us, right? Moni? Moni? Okay. <laughs> so you did actually call, you did actually um, send the email and ask them to make the correction, which they did. That's right. Uh, lovely story.
1: Yeah. I I love that you read that. I wasn't sure where you were going to go, and I was like, "Oh, she went there. Cool." <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I went there partly because I have felt that pressure myself many times. Yeah. Um, because my own personal uh, biography is very complicated. My upbringing is quite complicated. Even my sort of ethnicity. Um, and uh, I'm a dual national, and I'm also. Um, half, um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a dual citizen of, uh, the UK and Argentina. And I'm also half Indian, half British, but the Indian half is Indian Parsi. It's, mm-hmm. it's quite, co- it's, and I've lived all, all over the place. And I also didn't grow up with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had a really complex life and I find it, I feel as though I have so many things to pick and choose from there. Mm. that I'm very tempted to just kind of lean into the identity that's most convenient to the argument I'm making or the s- sort of way I'm presenting myself yes, in any right. particular situation. Um, I mean, I'm much more likely to talk about my Indian and Parsi heritage because it's more, quote-unquote, exotic um, mm-hmm. here in the West. And uh, and in India, it gives me a kind of sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, and to just conveniently forget that my mother was Scottish. Wow, <laughs> uh, yeah. Or, you know, when people are because I'm very anti-woke, I'm kind of woke skeptical, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a lot of people accusing me of being racist because I'm a skeptic about critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And it's very tempting to say to them, Moi, a racist, mm-hmm. I'm an <laughs> Indian lady, you know, <laughs> from mm-hmm, a minority group. There's my immunity. Um but that's not really it's not, it's true in a factual level, but it's not really true as as to how I experience my life. Mm -hmm. It's just more convenient, you know, a shield. Yeah. Yeah. So so I felt a bit called out when I read that passage. (laughs) Yes,
1: I, yeah, I did. It was, uh, it was definitely one of the more vulnerable passages I wrote. And I, I go on to talk about some insecurities I have when I negotiate my Latina identity, <laughs> and you know, gosh, these things are so personal and close to our hearts, uh, questions about who we are, how we're perceived, how we present ourselves. I mean humans are social creatures, we're very good at making decisions in milliseconds about these very things, so <laughs> we don't often we don't we don't often talk about the levels of intricacy and complication in that go into these decisions we make about precisely what you were saying which of my identities am I going to put on stage for this conversation how about for that one what about when i'm here or when i'm there it it's like we choose which truths about ourselves to turn the volume up on and which ones to turn down but we but why and and what does that mean for the overall picture of how honestly we express ourselves is a really interesting set of questions.
0: Yeah, I think that even when, as you say, you always try to be honest, and I also always try to be, I'm not sure if honest is the right word, I always try to be open, Mm -hmm. um, maximally frank. And I kind of pride myself on that. But I also think it's rather difficult to do. Um, It's really easy to kind of become self-deceptive become sort of deceptive in your self-presentation, even when you don't mean to. Yes. Um, Yes,
1: absolutely. And for me, there's actually a sensation attached to that. I can start to feel something in my gut kind of twist and squirm when whatever I'm saying or however I'm presenting feels like it's ignoring some key part of myself. And I feel like it builds up uh, to a point of intolerance and then I better fix it. Or I better walk away, or I better, I better figure it out. But but there's a little monster that kind of wakes up in me, going, "Hey, hey, what are you doing?"
0: Yeah, I, yeah, that, um, I can relate to that as well, <laughs> <laughs> very much. <laughs> I mean, part of the problem is that people are, and this is something you discuss in the book. We are so inclined to leap to conclusions about the other person. And you, t- you talk about, you use this lovely image. Um, it made me think of, uh, in Microsoft Word, they used to have this. I don't know if they still do because I have an Apple now, but they used to have this, um, um, Clippy who is a paper yes. clip assistant that <laughs> yes. would pop up. Yep. And that was the image that was in my mind when you were talking about our internal assumption assistant.
1: Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that metaphor. <laughs> Yes, uh, the assumption assistant, you can't you can't give them the day off. They're always with you. and when you go up to a person, when you see a person, your mind will download a lot of perceptions you have about that person, and many of them will be assumptions. Uh, assumptions are sort of answers to questions you haven't asked yet that you choose to probably just believe for the sake of moving on with your life, you know, doing the things you have to do. That assumption assistant, uh, I do picture in the book as sort of a you know little guy with a clipboard, um, just kind of following you around, whispering in your ear and you have to be careful what you listen to. Th- those, those assumptions come at us all the time and, and we cannot turn them off. They are part of how we survive in this world. Uh, but they also can become part of what gets in the way of our seeing the world and the people in it for who they
0: are. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I'm. Um, so I, I guess uh, the first question I wanted to ask you, I suppose I already have asked you some questions mm-hmm. in a sense, but the first thing I was wondering was, um, so there have been several books recently on this topic of um, polarization, how to have better conversations across political divides. And it's clearly a topic that's very much on people's minds um, for a lot of reasons that you outline, for historical and statistical reasons that you actually outline very clearly in your opening chapter. Um, And I have read a couple of the others. Um, I've read James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian's book, Impossible Conversations, um and also Buster Benson's book Why Are We Yelling I enjoy B- Buster's book much more mm-hmm. than Peter and James's book and actually uh I talked to Buster on this podcast also he is lovely he's, he's just wonderful a- yes he's he's
1: a friend he's just fantastic and I love that book
0: uh i'm totally people are always teasing me about my crush on Buster um, <laughs> He's not single, which is one of the tragedies of my life. Door <laughs> uh, Buster. Yes. Um, but I um I wonder if you did you feel um I'm not sure what your process is, whether you read some of those uh read some other similar books before you began writing or while you were writing, mm-hmm. or if you've read them since and what you think um those books might be missing that you have been able to been able to express through your book or what angle is there that's 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 not there in in those books hmm
1: in my process i am a bit of a chameleon intellectually and what i mean by that is whatever i'm reading kind of takes over my life for a while. (laughs) So so suddenly everything I'll sort of see through that lens. And that's Mm. really lovely in a lot of ways. I think it makes me a, you know, a skilled interviewer because I disappear into other people's stories. Um, It helps with my curiosity. But it actually, while I was writing the book, I did not read other books because it would make it hard to access my own, my own message and my own story and spirit. And so I wanted to put a real priority on trusting that what I had seen and gathered, uh, and the lens that I would put on this is fresh and unique. And so let's bring it out. So Mm -hmm. that, that's the process answer. Now, now when I look at it, I did read Buster's book. Um, and, um, and I, I have, um, Peter Bogosian's book on my shelf. And I've read a good bit of that one. And, you know, Amanda Ripley, High Conflict, which is, is a wonderful book I haven't read all of. So um, I've, I've sort of picked up, you know, bits and pieces of it. And I, and I, I, I guess I'll, I'll say this. For me, for me, these questions about how you talk to people across the divide, why we're polarized and what we do about it, the, the piece that I am trying to dig into very deeply and explore and bring out is that it's all people. I have a, I have a, a chapter in the book that uh, begins with a quick anecdote about my, my favorite movie quote, <laughs> and it's from a classic French film. Uh, but the, the quote is, the most, the most terrible thing in life is this, it's that everybody has their reasons. And so to me, there's something about there's something very challenging about acknowledging that everybody has their reasons. It is much easier to say that some people are just nuts, that they're crazy, that they don't have reasons. When you believe that, then it then becomes easy to think that you can win a battle on Twitter with some mic drop comment and that it actually made a difference. Um, you can believe that, you know, marshalling uh, the best arguments and then uh, putting out the facts and information on your side is all you can really do to try to make the other side see sense. Um, I think when you believe that, when you don't don't sort of understand that, that everybody has their reasons, I, I think it can be very easy to see the world around us as a set of ideas and a set of institutions and all these constructions and structures that we've built and that that's really what matters. But it doesn't. For me, it's all people people mm. are the deepest mysteries we have around us the most powerful creatures we have around us they are the only agents they are the only thing that can do a thing is <laughs> a person and people so the fact to me that we spend so much time not thinking about people and how they work and how they interpret the world and and trying to dig into that mystery and become more closely acquainted that instead we really we really go deep into, you know, kind of um, the the facts, the stories, the interpretations, the the convictions, the certainties, uh, you know, all these things. It's like all that is very valuable, but we've forgotten that this is ultimately all about people. So and this is the first time I'm saying this out loud. I really love that you asked this question. I, I think that there is something I am saying about that truth and that everything emanates from there.
0: It's really um so several things that you said um really gel gelled with me in that regard, in in um riffing a little bit on this idea that it's about people. Um, one of them is that um as you say, everybody has their reasons. And you cite uh Jonathan Haidt's work a little bit on his his idea from I don't know if it's in, I think it's in righteous minds where he talks about the rider of emotion and the elephant yes. of the kind of rational mind. But the elephant is less a sort of thinker and cogitator than, um, an attorney or a PR agent. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, we are very good at finding rationalizations. To explain why we feel and believe the things we believe, so we're all really good at coming up with reasons. We're not all equally good at talking. So some people, as as you describe your a conversation, you you an argument you start to have with your mother about politics, Mm -hmm. and you say your mother just slumps down there on the stair, and she says, "Moni, you know, stop." I uh, um. There's no use even having this conversation because you are too good at this, I think is mm-hmm. what she yep. says. Yep. I, I you know your mother feels she doesn't have a a chance because she's not as uh she's not as um verbally quick-witted as right. you are. So not everyone is as good as at expressing and making their case. Um but everybody has in their own mind their their they're firm reasons for thinking the things that they do. And it's not, um, our opinions and beliefs are not voluntary. It's not, I don't consciously choose to believe something. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, um, how do you put it? You quote a philosopher who says mm-hmm. something about how our beliefs Emerge over the course of our lives. Can yeah, they're the, exactly?
1: the natural—they're the natural results of of they, they emerge naturally over the course of our lives. And and I heard him. His name is David Smith. He's here in Washington State. And it just—it was a huge aha moment for me. Just enormous. <laughs> that that unlocked a lot of my understanding how I see these things. That um, you know, and and as soon as I started thinking about it, it made so much sense. I, I talk in the book about. You know, I started to think: Could my husband just go from adoring Star Wars today to deciding that he likes Star uh, Star Trek more tomorrow? No. Like, he saw you know the the prequels as a kid in the theaters like three times each. You know, with his dad, he has a life size Yoda replica. No, he can't just choose. <laughs> you know, it's like our experiences and our paths lead us to our opinions. If we're honest right? They mm. sit in our hearts. These views mm. sit in our hearts because of the paths we have walked to them. And so, so again, it's sort of when you look at it that way, the fact that we spend so much of our time when we talk about whatever it is that's, you know, really dividing us and bothering us, we spend very little time asking each other where we're coming from. And to me, that's you're not you're not seeing the other person's beliefs at all. If all you're looking at is sort of their conclusion where they sit right now, but you don't know the path they walked to get there, you 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 forget, you know, that this is this this is a plant with roots and the roots go way down, right? Mm. And if we knew that and we understood that, would we would we get so exhausted trying to pull each other out of the ground? Like you can't you can't do that. You know what I mean? And so this game of persuasion, this this the, these games that we play with each other, as if we can change our minds with a meme, you know, wow, again, it just connotes to me, it just speaks to me of this, of this kind of lack of embrace of the rich mystery of people and, and how we really work.
0: I think there are two really important things here for me that came up as 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 I'm listening to you and as I was reading, and one is that um I increasingly feel that we don't change our minds from hearing other people's reasons for things mm-hmm. um, Well, we might do uh, you know uh, I think you say this somewhere in the book that the the kind of world of reasons and opinions and views that we're walking and swirling around us those are like little seeds and some of those seeds may take root and some of them may blossom and grow and may change what we previously thought but that's an organic process yes um it's more like um i think one of the people you talk to interviewed um no just talk to actually not interview just talk (laughs) to says that it's like uh that your ideas and opinions are like dandelions that suddenly spring mm. up on mm-hmm. the lawn there. Mm-hmm. Um So I think there's that one thing, there's there's this failure to acknowledge that it's quite a it's a long process, mm-hmm. and you're not going to be able to win, not usually going to be able to win people over in one conversation. Mm-hmm. And in fact, thinking of it in terms of trying to win the conversation is the wrong way to see it. Right. Because I guess, you know, the other part of it is that, or there are two more parts of it. I said there were only two, but actually there are three. You should never say at the beginning of announcing something how many parts there are going to be. I learned this when I was a lecturer. You never <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> say there are going to be three parts to this lecture. You'll always
1: find <laughs> out more, yeah. Or, Dig up or more. less. Or, or
0: less. You'll get the, yeah. You'll, or you'll, you'll forget what you were saying. Part, you're like, was there a third part? <laughs> I know. Um, but, uh, uh, um one thing is that people um it's re- it, it's often relationships with people that convince people to change their minds. Yeah. And I don't know if you followed the Irish um referendum on same-sex marriage or marriage equality as we usually call it here. Yeah. Not closely um, but but say more. So there were a lot of people uh were interviewed so Ireland had ha- had a referendum on same-sex marriage about 20 years ago um, or 30 years ago. And then they had this fairly recent one, maybe four or five years ago. Um, and they interviewed a number of people who had voted no in the first referendum mm-hmm. and voted yes in this recent referendum. And those people had been... Almost all of them said that they had been convinced by knowing somebody who was gay, mm-hmm. by getting to know someone who was gay. So it was entirely about relationships. Yep. Um, it was not at all about arguments. And yeah, I've forgotten what the second part was, but that's the mm-hmm. first part. <laughs> it might come back to me. Yeah. No. And that
1: that's that's spot on. Um, we. I think what happens is that we get so excited about the reasons that back up our own beliefs that we then think the reasons themselves are powerful, separate from who we are, right? That those reasons, the power they had to win me over or to back up my belief, the meaning that I see in that reason, well, all I need to do is grab that reason, and give it to somebody else, you know? <laughs> here mm. have my reason and mm. the person goes oh great reason and it will have the exact same impact it had on them that it had on you and again we forget people and how they work it's like we take people out of the equation this is not just a world of floating ideas and empty vessels you know um and so yeah what happens when we meet someone who surprises us right so in the case of same-sex marriage you know i you know let's say i'm i'm someone who didn't believe it was it was right and a good thing and i meet someone who is gay and i see myself in them in ways that surprise me <laughs> what do you know i start to relate to them and then all those ties make me ask questions about whatever i assumed about their lives and when you when you start doing that you you do you ask you ask fresh questions of the reasons that back up your belief that same-sex marriage is wrong. And slowly but surely you may find yourself untying some knots and leaving threads open. And then over time, you may just you may you may realize that you're on the other side. Because again, it's it's not it's not always a choice, right? It's a choice to go and do you know what people call research, which is a loaded term. So it's a choice to go, you know, deeper into evidence, but it's also It's also a factor of your curiosity, and your curiosity uh comes from some you know wonderful places within you uh gaps in your knowledge that you feel a pull to solve um, and there will be things in your life depending on the stage of life you're in and, and the concerns you know that that tug at your heart. Um, you will go and chase certain things more than others, so again, you know to approach a person as if all these dynamics are not. The most important thing is really missing a lot. It's really making us blind.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is that um, you are not focused on um, on persuasion or rhetoric. You're not focused on um, how you, general you, you the reader, as well as you, Monica, um, can get other people to agree with you, can persuade other people, win them over to your opinion. Um, but it's really focused on what you can learn from other people. Mm-hmm. So what you're, you advocate is asking the right kinds of questions, um, un- really understanding why people think and feel the way that they do, and just listening. And you posit as a reward for that just simply it enables you to learn more about the world. Um, mm-hmm. It's about satisfying one's own curiosity. Um, and the byproduct of that is, is the byproducts of that are um, that people then feel more inclined to work together with you on finding the kind of compromises you need if you're going to do mm-hmm. politics, because politics is, a, is, is about finding compromises mm-hmm. Um and also to to just um, they are they're also more likely to be persuaded, but that is really um, kind of a side effect of the the mm-hmm. first part, which is the just going out there with a scout mindset and mm-hmm. finding out stuff about people.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, and there's there's a thread too about. I I I I reflect a little bit on respect in the book I've I've always had trouble with the concept of respect it's been criticized a lot of ways you know oh you know be respectable um you know follow certain norms uh, so that you'll seem like you're treating others with respect well what if what if um what's true in my heart and what I want to say doesn't fit into those norms you know I I don't I don't know about this concept of respect but but respect What I, what I think respect boils down to is understanding the integrity of, of people's perspectives, people's paths they took to those perspectives and the future paths that their perspectives will take. Uh, when we come in trying to kind of grab at each other's threads and you know yell at each other for for being where we are and not being where we ought to be. you know you ought to be over here. I don't understand why you believe this and that and the other thing it's I think that is ultimately a lack of respect and it's a different it's a different definition of it this This is something I struggle with all the time you know we we get angry that other people don't see things the way we do. We get so angry and and sometimes we think that the way they see things is causing harm so you know, like you, you, you get mad and you get demanding and that is a reflex and it is a very natural human reaction. And we should have that reaction sometimes because this pressure that we put on each other, um, this friction, you know, that we give each other, uh, can make some pretty amazing things happen. We, We just have to remember that there is a difference between, you know, being open and being closed and being curious and being condescending. And I think, I think I even see folks who believe they're being curious actually be quite condescending um, because they're coming in already with the sense that they are 100% right and that they have nothing to learn from this other person. They're only here to change this other person because something about this other person is wrong and therefore this other person is somehow less of a person than they are and you know, and like it starts to get when you really look at it that way. Wow, you know? The these ways that we treat each other's integrity and our our sort of agency over our own perspectives and the integrity of our lives and experiences and and where we've come from to what we believe, to not be curious about that, to not leave space and listen to that piece of someone to just come in guns blazing is so, yeah, I mean, um, you asked, you know, what's different about my book? And and there are, you know, guidelines in my book. There are some, some, as you said, sort of generalized, try this, try this, try this. But really, this isn't so much a tactical list of things as much as a reframing. This is a reframing. and And I really believe that this reframing will allow people to put such a different lens on their interactions and on how they even view their own certainties about the world, right? That 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 reframing in and of itself, you walk up into a conversation, you will know what to do. You will know exactly what to ask. Your question that comes from your curiosity with this reframing, you'll be able to Extricate from that question any accusation that you want in the question. You know, try to get a two for one deal. I'm going to make a statement and pretend I'm asking a question. No, you stay curious. You really work on that and you ask that question. And, and I believe that that can be so important. So, so anyway, I, it's, this isn't so much a tactical to do list. It's, it's trust yourself. Trust yourself. If you, if you can reframe this to, to, to understand that these, that other people are extraordinarily fascinating. Why? Because you are, because we all are. Then this is an adventure, y'all. This is, this is interesting. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's really the call is this is fascinating. We are living in extraordinary times with so many values and tension. And, and and thinking that things come from something evil in people's hearts that pe- that people themselves are evil is just not working. It's
0: mm-hmm. not getting mm-hmm. us
1: where we need to go.
0: You give a really lovely example. So you talk about chaining, and you say, um, you say that uh, if you when you hear that somebody, for example, uh, you hear a woman talking about her um, how upset or angry she is about looting in her town after the um, Black Lives Matter and during the the George Floyd summer, um, some of the looting that went on. And you immediately get angry and defensive and jump to the conclusion that she is a racist. And there's a really long chain of things that have happened in your head uh, between the A of her saying she's She's worried about looting or angry about looting and the Z of being a racist. Right. And one is that, you know, first you go from some people who are concerned about looting uh, are also also oppose the Black Lives Matter protests themselves. And some people who oppose them oppose them on the grounds that they dislike the aims of the organization. And some people dislike the aims of the organization because they feel that it might be too empowering to black people. Of course, Mm -hmm. there can be many other reasons for for opposing their aims, and then some people think that that therefore means because some uh, that therefore means that some of those people are are out and out racists, Mm -hmm. and then you just make this loop back to Mm -hmm. the woman is a racist. So because some people who think A also think B. Therefore everybody who says a must be thinking b c d e f all the way through to z. Yep. Yep.
1: And and I <laughs> I talk about, you know, the very understandable uh reasons and dynamics that this this has happened to us. And and I give examples from the left and the right, you know, this everybody does this. And um you know, largely, it's because you spend a lot of time online for the people who spend a lot of time online, you know, on platforms like Twitter and others, they have seen so many of these scripts. And just like that, you know, at least to their mind, there's trolls and there's things and 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 people share these stories about, you know, this person said this, and then look at this horrible thing they ended up doing. And so those stories become larger than life and really take over, and you start to just believe, well, anytime I see, this first part of the script it's inevitably gonna lead to that last part I'm tired I'm tired you know I'm here on Twitter I'm trying to have good conversations there's so much bullcrap out there and so I can just kind of assume already that this is how the movie's gonna end and so let me just pretend that that's the case and shut my doors and protect my space right and put in my profile you know unfriend me if you if you do X Y or Z this is what I believe you know send the signal out that you know who you want you know who you don't want. <laughs> and that's it we need to shut our doors we need to build our walls we need to have the conversations we want to have and the ones you know that we don't want to have we just we're just so sure they're going to be terrible and and again a lot of times they are terrible a lot of times they really are terrible um so these platforms aren't helping us see the full deep rich mystery of people all we're seeing is words on a screen with a little photo of god knows what you know and and some words that come from a real human being but The internet is a non-place that makes us into non-people and too much Mm. time spent on there. You, you really just, you know, there's no people, there's just chains of ideas. So for my own sanity and, you know, for me to not get so exhausted and cynical on this platform, I'm going to need to make some quick conclusions so I know who to shut out. Mm. Anyway, it comes Mm. from a good place, but, but, uh, it's killing us.
0: Yeah, you talk about the solipsism of it, of the internet, and it's sort of the opposite. I'm thinking now, um, as we're talking, this is occurring to me that it's kind of the opposite of the uh, genuine open curiosity that you um, that you urge us to foster. Um, so you say, we know, I mean, you know, and I know when I'm asking a question and I'm not really asking it as a question because I'm curious about what the answer will be, mm-hmm. but I want to show off or I want to kind of insinuate something or I want to attack or I want to mm-hmm. put the other person on the spot or test them or, um, yeah, um uh, you know, and obviously I do do those things all the time when asking questions because I'm very fallible in that regard. But I also... No, when there's no curiosity there, I'm mm. asking a question, but I'm not really interested in the answer because I already right. have the kind of, I think I have the answer I need in my own head. Yeah. Um, and in a way, the social media world fosters that, not be- not just because of trolls and things, but because, um, it's a world that we're able to create for ourselves yeah. that we need only encounter Uh, the people online who we've chosen to encounter. Um, We can only read the things we've chosen to read. Um, We can create these little completely tailor-made worlds. And that, um, it's very tempting to dip then into those worlds, Um, but it's also very empty. I mean, I really worry about this for myself and Mm -hmm. other people how much time we spend in the virtual and how little time we spend in the real world yeah right exactly and um uh one of my good friends Julie Pham
1: who I mentioned in the book she she is one of the most curious people i know she makes it part of her life practice i've amazing stories about how she does that but but um i was getting curious about why she's so curious with her and asking her just peppering her with questions one day about how she came to this and and the the line that really stuck with me that she told me was you know, I think I just like to surprise myself. <laughs> and and I loved that. Um, me, me and my husband have two kids and uh, both times we chose not to know the gender ahead of time. And mm. some of our friends were just like flabbergasted. Why wouldn't you want to know the gender? And it's just, it's just like surprise. Surprise in general is fairly uh, endangered in some ways in our lives because because thanks to technology and so many efficiencies that we've built into it, um, we really can predict quite a bit uh, and so we choose to because it means that we can plan better and get even more efficient but <laughs> But surprises are so great because we may not have built up our defenses against them right they they might just arrive and knock us sideways and challenge us in in some in some cool way that really sends us in a new direction we don't know and to be open to that is to be vulnerable and why be vulnerable in such a scary
0: world mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i um i was i was wondering this is slightly tangential but in the book you talk several times about um the things that you've learned from being a journalist and how um asking questions for a living as a journalist has helped you in your conversations with people. And what I was wondering was, when did you first decide that you wanted to be a journalist? And what attracted you to that profession? What was the kind of vision of it you had? Mm. And um, yeah, let's start there. Yeah. So uh, the very
1: earliest point was third grade. I would get Sorry, what what age is that? Because I'm not oh, really
0: familiar right. with the American system.
1: Third grade would be about eight years old. Ah, okay. Um, so I remember, you know, being eight years old in class, and I would finish some test early a little bit, and I would bring my paper up to hand it in, and then I would grab another blank piece of paper and come back down, and then I would just start writing what everyone in the class was doing. I found this fun. So Jennifer Puck had just, you know, um, shifted in her seat. Craig Maggio went up to get a tissue. I would just start writing. So there was just this thing about documenting that was always there. But really, later on, it became my love for conversation in general. My parents, who have the opposite politics of of me, which is covered uh, quite a bit in the book, and then me and my brother, around the dinner table, we would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. About all kinds of stuff, uh, and we'd go in all these surprising directions, and we'd get heated because we have a very unfiltered family, and so you you always know where people in my family stand. no one hides very much very well, so you know unfiltered open conversations and then journalism just seemed to me like, oh my gosh, I get to go wait a minute, hang on, you know hold the phone i get to you're telling me I can get paid to go and talk to people learn what learn stuff about them that's really interesting interesting enough uh to believe that others want to know and then i i have to learn those things you know well enough to understand them at a deep level and then i and then i communicate those ideas to others that's that's the job <laughs> like really oh yeah let's do that and then my very first uh internship was an unpaid internship at New Hampshire Public Radio and there was a night where I was interviewing the owner of a small independent movie theater that was screening my Big Fat Greek Wedding and I was doing a feature story about independent cinemas in New Hampshire. And I was still like a pipsqueak, very green, very nervous, but there was a moment. I had planned to be there, I don't know, like an hour getting some radio stuff from people coming out of the theater and then talking to the owner for like a little while and then going home. And and I just remember sort of waking up like I had never gone to, gone to sleep. But some part of my consciousness waking up. It was dark. We were outside sitting on the steps of this movie theater, which had been converted from, I think, an old church. The owner was sitting next to me. It had been, I don't know how long. I do not know how long. Hour and a half, two hours, much more. I don't know, but it was dark and I didn't care and I had completely forgotten myself. And I looked at his face and he was kind of looking up a little bit away and he was digging up he was telling me the whole story of why he decided to buy an independent movie theater why it mattered to him that it was important in the community all these kinds of things and i realized a couple of things at the same time one of those being this man had discovered things about himself that he hadn't articulated to himself thanks to me and my questions and then the other thing that i realized was this is heaven I love this. This is great. People are awesome. I got to do this more. Let's go. <laughs> so I just I just think people are so fascinating. And I I love being able to help them discover. I mean, the, the, the least favorite thing I, I, I hear from people is, you know, I'm not interesting. I don't have anything to say. Like, yes, you do. Of course you are. Yes, you are. You're a human being. Of course you are. You have incredible stories. You just don't know it, you know? And so Ah, it's sort of the sense that we're all extraordinary, but we 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 choose to ignore that. Um, <laughs> that I think really fuels um, my interest in journalism and, and sort of a continuing fascination with with people.
0: I've been thinking. Uh, I was thinking a lot about the the kinds of questions that it makes sense to ask people, and the kinds of questions that people respond well to. I'm just going to read a tiny little quotation from your book. You say, mm-hmm. um, "I was." I I really love this um, moment in the book. You say questions have this incredible and incredibly obvious power that I didn't appreciate until I'd spent years asking them for a living. When you ask a question, people feel compelled to answer it, which is which is absolutely true and really really odd if you think mm-hmm. about it. It is. Um, that you could just, when people ask something, I feel compelled to answer, even if it's some troll on Twitter who I know is not going to take my answer seriously and doesn't even care what I say. If they ask me a question, I want to answer. Um, and um ordinary people, powerful people, it's super hard to dance the dance that keeps you from confronting whatever a question presents. Questions, in other words, put intense pressure on people to release information. Um I mean what I have certainly noticed in myself is that um some kinds of of questions even if they're really well meant make me instantly clam up. I feel as though I don't have a good answer to that. And I don't mean I mean um I don't mean questions about information that I might not know. I mean just personal questions about myself mm-hmm. and make me immediately feel very awkward whereas other questions make me feel like disclosing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder whether, I you talk a lot about the, in the book more specifically about the kinds of questions, but I wonder if you could give some examples from your own life of questions you've been asked that have made you clam up and questions that have made you just want to tell all. Mm.
1: Oh, what a great point. Well, one thing I think of that we don't do often enough is question the question. You know, questions, questions uh, have this power and people feel compelled to answer. And so someone asks a question and then you're kind of, you feel kind of trapped, right? But, um, mm. but you can question the question. So in, in your question, you're making, you're making a very natural assumption that the difference between what makes you clam up and what makes you want to open up is in the question. But <laughs> I would question that and say that the difference is in the level of connection and trust with the person who's asking. Uh, so I I could tell you questions that coming from one person make me clam up, but coming from another person in a warm, wonderful conversation, I will gush with the same question. So so that's really it. Um, I I'm not sure that focusing on the on the on the tech, you know, the things in the question beyond a certain point are 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 all that valuable now. I I did mention earlier, there's this thing that we often do where we're asking a question, but not curiously, meaning Mm. we're not asking the question with the primary objective of filling a gap in our knowledge. We're asking the question with another primary objective to corner someone, to make them feel disqualified from the conversation, to make a statement, to bully, right? So the thing is, we can feel that. We feel it. Now, when we're in person, I would say the fidelity of our interpretation of whether that's going on is quite high because in person, somebody can say, What do you mean? And you hear the tone and they don't really want to know what you mean. They're just really mad about whatever you said. (laughs) You know what I mean? You have to deal with that first. (laughs) And that's probably what you react to. Now, online on Twitter, somebody goes, What do you mean? Well, they could be saying it in a mean way or they could be saying it in a nice way, but you don't hear the tone. So then you go to the next level of stuff. Well, it's like, well, have I tweeted with this person before? Do I know them? Like, do we have a good rapport? Is is this person nothing but a critic? So, if that person is nothing but a critic for you, you will give them a tone and you will read that tweet and it'll say, "What do you mean?" And that's the way you'll take it and you'll clam up, right? But if you have a rapport with this person and it's somebody who you think respects you and you respect them, Then then they go. What do you mean? And you're compelled to answer. So, yeah, (laughs) I'll
0: leave it at that. But yeah did that
1: did that get to what you were asking? I think I forgot. Yes,
0: yes, it 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 did. I mean, I've often noticed just how different I I am, and I think everyone is with different people around different people, and how differently I answer actually on Twitter the same question or respond to the almost the same remark, depending on whether I have experienced that person before as hostile or have never experienced them or that person is, a, is someone I consider a friend or friendly acquaintance. Um, and I wish I could kind of get past that. Um, and I, I have to say that um, I was quite proud of my ability to talk to a lot of people on Twitter across political divides. So, what I was thinking I mean just now actually, as we were talking was that one of the issues with Twitter is that you both um have the converse- have conversations with people directly and you also see what they are saying about you to other people talking about you in the third person and this is something that doesn't happen in real life and which thank God you know i i i, I prefer not to know what people are saying about me. Um, well, of course, there's a part of me that prefers to know. And it it one of the reasons why I sort of muted, mostly muted, but blocked a couple of people on Twitter who've been long-term friendly acquaintances um, is that I saw what they were saying about me in another conversation that was very extreme. And it just made me feel I don't I don't want to interact with these people anymore, and I feel a bit guilty about that now because I kind of pride myself on being able to have cross aisle conversations on twitter
1: and they were they did also happen to disagree with you. It wasn't just sort of a unrelated yeah,
0: yeah no, they did disagree, uh mm-hmm. but the characterizations were you know that as a white supremacist and a oh, Nazi God. and stuff yeah. like that and, yeah um yeah, I and mean, one of them said I was. Literally and metaphorically in bed with members of the far right, which was a really strange thing to say. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think this is, this is a really weird function of Twitter. Not that people say bad things about you or that, um, you know, you have difficult conversations with people who disagree, who say bad things to you, but that there can be this absolute mismatch between what it's like talking to someone and what they what it's like talking about someone right. and you don't usually see both of those things at almost the same time right. but on twitter you do and it's just too disorienting a reaction and i still think those people are perfectly good people i think they just got kind of carried away yeah. but i also it upsets me too much it makes me feel like okay i just don't need that in my life it's
1: yeah and it's, that's the thing i mean i think you just you just kind of Got it right. Part part of I think respecting <laughs> respecting people in their integrity to make these choices is that people make these choices, and it it is too much, right? I mean, it's completely understandable and relatable. I think to many people that if you heard someone say something, you know, to be ex- extremely judgmental and inaccurate, you know, to 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 what you believe your path truly is, and and if you believe that they did. Yeah, like it sounds to me like these folks probably did a lot of chaining, right? We talked about that dynamic. They did a lot of chaining to get to that judgment and conclusion about you, and at least in that moment chose not to have any curiosity about you that at least keeps doors open before they, you know, slam them shut into some certainty about who you are. It's perfectly relatable, uh, after a moment like that, for a person to make that call and say, You're too far gone. I'm not I'm not gonna leave the door open to you. So, you know, that that's really tricky. And that's one of the hardest questions I get about, you know, that's sort of sitting in the background of this whole theme is, wait a minute, do you expect me to talk to, you know, and then here comes the list of people that it seems like insane to talk to? Should I talk to someone Mm. who believes I shouldn't exist? Should I talk to someone who, you know, yeah, who, who believes this thing that is that has to be evidently harmful should i should i talk to you know aren't there ideas that should be completely off the table and all of that and and those those things are just they're such a personal they're such a personal decision and the same way you know that people kind of arrive at their opinions well they arrive at their set of criteria for what kinds of conversations they they want to have um you know w- w- one way that i think of uh, my objective in the book such as it is is um is I'd like to persuade people to be one level more curious than they are. Mm, So mm. I don't need everyone who's very close to suddenly be very open. Or at least I'm not I'm not demanding that because that's silly. You know, that's a big that's a big big ask overnight without me knowing who you are, you know what I mean like I don't know but but um but if you are very closed, can you be level one open if you're level one, can you be level two you know um can you can you take that one step? can you cross a small bridge because again it's it's not the the unrealistic goal would be let's all wake up tomorrow morning and we're zen like you know <laughs> open, like totally cool and confident, able to talk about anything with anyone no. That's, that's just not possible. Uh, but I do think that if we don't start reversing this trend toward more conclusions, more fear, more assumptions, more anxiety, and start taking a couple steps the other way, more openness, more humility, um, more listening, more curiosity about other people's paths, then we're really doomed. We really, really are. So, so that's my ask is not go all the way and tomorrow, you know, follow back the people who called you such horrible things, but, but look at the edges of your own circle and can you push them out a little further?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I I mean, one of the things that I, um, I guess this is not exactly related to what you just said, but it's, it's related in my mind i'm not sure if i can i can kind of make the connection clear but you talk about um opinions as being a sort of snapshot right um that we can present it as rather than this is what i believe um we can present it as here's where my mind is at this moment on this topic um and um it's It's always really odd to me the level of cognitive dissonance I notice in myself um, in the difference between how strongly I hold an opinion or a view um, and how kind of misguided um, I think people are who think differently and how long I've held that opinion or view. I mean, I have changed my mind on some pretty pretty important things over the years. And I've even changed my mind and changed it back again. And nevertheless, even though I know (laughs) that I have changed my mind, I can't kind of help myself from feeling emotionally as though I've held these beliefs always. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I was wondering what you thought about why that is and why Whether that's related to the whole phenomenon that converts are the most zealous. Why are converts the most zealous? They ought to be the ones who most understand um, where people are coming from because they were there themselves five minutes ago.
1: Mm -hmm. Isn't that fascinating? You know, this reminds me of a little um, sort of, I call them, I never thought of it that way moments I had not that long ago. Uh, And I forget exactly where it came from, but somebody made the point to me in conversation. uh, The assumption is that the people who hold the minority opinion, the unpopular opinion, like severely unpopular opinion on something, haven't done their research. And this person said, I find that those people have done the most research. (laughs) And I was like, wait, say more. (laughs) And, And he said, well, they're constantly being attacked for the opinion they have. And so... They're preoccupied by it because everyone's kind of blaming and shaming them for it. So they end up, you know, looking for their own definition of research, right? L- looking at looking at whatever they have to look at just to, to be able to have some answer to the people who say, you are awfully wrong. And if they don't have some answer, well, gosh, I mean, their life is just being punched all the time right by other people. And I thought that was so fascinating. So what you're saying about converts or zealots, you know, if you had to make that transformation into a whole new way of being, you probably also had to kind of kill your last your last iteration of yourself. You had to you had to leave some, you know, with really big things that you change your mind on, right? Like big changes in your religious beliefs for example. That these things are painful. And so to have to go through that pain to be willing to go through a pain of a big transformation on a big issue, uh, you know, because you're compelled, uh, you, you, you need to do it and, you, and then you need to somehow explain it to everyone around you. Well, you're going to be doing a lot of thinking about it, <laughs> probably more than many others, right, who have held their convictions their whole lives, never had them challenged. You know, everything's hunky dory. So, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and, and going back to what you were saying uh, about, you know, opinions as snapshots you know you bring up a really interesting point which is that our deeply held opinions will never feel like a snapshot you know and and they shouldn't and they and they won't um what what i what i suggest is that if we take our language in conversation and use language in such a way that it allows us to hold our beliefs more loosely just in the context of the conversation that's it hold them loosely in the context of the conversation. You know, why? So that they can play, so that they can explore, so that those attachments that we began this conversation talking about don't have quite such a grip. So you see the spaces between things, which we normally don't see. A conversation with another mind is an extraordinary opportunity. It's a beautiful opportunity to put a fresh perspective on yourself. It's risky and it's scary sometimes, but I think what people don't always realize is you still are in control. you know you know how there's that fear that if you listen to someone else, you must endorse what they believe hmm. I mean, I think that is the problem that belief is the one that I want to quash I mean that belief is what's killing us uh we we can't we can't continue to think that you know that we are that we are somehow that what like that weak <laughs> that 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 sort of no, that that's not how this works. You're you're still in control. Can, can you can you have the level of curiosity and maybe a little bit of courage, just just to be in conversation and to look at ideas and to understand that they are separate from people and to play and and look like like you said, our deepest convic- convictions are deep. Their roots are deep. They're not going to change in one conversation. What are we afraid of? So. I don't know. I kind of come back to that too. It's like, what are what are we so afraid of?
0: Mm. Aren't we afraid of finding out that we're wrong? Um, I mean, I often feel as though, even as I'm as I'm more and more kind of defining my own sets of beliefs. Um, there's often just this niggling feeling at the back of my mind. Oh shit. What if I'm wrong about this? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like that meme that people are always using, which is the scene from the little scene from, um, Inglorious Bastards, um, where the Nazi officer is asking, it's a gif that people use a lot. He's asking, mm-hmm. are we the baddies? Um and people mm. use that in a kind of ironic way all the time mm-hmm. but it is a question that I sometimes feel just sneaking up on me.
1: Definitely. Um and yeah. thinking
0: wait a minute are we the baddies?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I and I think I I mean <laughs> this isn't an easy um question to hear in response to that anxiety but I mean if I'm wrong would I rather know later or know now? if i'm if i'm wrong right so if if something can come to me that could that could um that would actually genuinely push me in a different direction then i can assume the following i can assume that because of the deep roots of my entire life and my path this thing that is coming at me if it actually pushes me in a different direction then that's where i need to go that's where i need to go now Right, because we're not so we're not so flexible, right? That someone handing me their reason for believing something awful is, is suddenly going to transfer that same belief to me just because they handed me that reason. Mm. That's not how this works. So if if someone hands me a reason and it does have an impact on me, and I realize that my conclusion was wrong, well, good. Then that's what yeah. needed to happen. Well, yeah. good. You know. So, um, but of course, it's like we have a certain sense of pride. And we we bring our opinions and our convictions into conversations with each other it with this sense that if we are wrong, we should be ashamed of ourselves, and that if we are wrong, we are weak, and that if we are wrong, we are not worthy and we don't matter and so these are the things I think we need to do it's that attitude is incorrect that's where we're wrong, right like in my in my mind is like. A shame about changing one's mind. I still remember uh, the campaign with Mitt Romney back in the day. What was it, the flip flopper? Right, like we have these models out in the world that if you if you're a politician and you flip flop and you change your mind, right, people don't trust you because well they want you to stick with your convictions that they mm-hmm. happen to share mm-hmm. with you. It makes perfect sense in the context of politics. But what we do is we take those lessons from places like that, you know, where it kind of makes sense that people would feel that way, and we apply it to each other. And if you change your mind. It's so funny because we want each other to change our minds, but at the same time we think changing your mind is weak. So what are we doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? like, how does that make any sense? Like we can't have it both ways. Um, so I don't know. Plus, it, it it leads to something truly awful that happens all the time, which is that people are actually impacted by what other people are saying, but will never admit it.
0: Mm. You know, yeah, I think they yeah. will admit it eventually. At least I will. This is what often happens to me: is that in the heat of the fight, I'm not going to give an inch. Um, and right. then, uh, you know, um, I gradually start to have doubts. Oh, what if there is something in what that person is saying? Yes. And, um, that can go all the way to a complete change of mind. And yes. the change of mind might be years later though. And the person never gets to it, so you you very rarely get to kind of win quote unquote yes! in the moment. You don't <laughs> exactly. Get, if you're looking for that kind of victory, it's very rare. Absolutely, um, you just but you never know what impact you are having or not having.
1: Yeah, and um, you know I love that you brought that up. I I, I got to share something with you because it's it's relevant and just happened. So to that point about people never hear you know, that maybe something they said actually led someone to change their mind. I recently changed, very recently, like in the last week, changed my mind about something pretty core to my beliefs about abortion. And as soon I was driving in my car when I realized, oh my gosh, I've I now believe something different. Oh my gosh. And it was a result of a conversation with uh with April Cornfield on the Brave Angels podcast about abortion, plus a conversation with my mother, who is very pro-life, After she had listened to that podcast about abortion, plus I think one more conversation uh, with someone I forget. And then I realized I changed my mind on this one element and I could get more specific. I think that's that's okay. But anyway, and the first thing I wanted to do was call April. And so I did. I called, I I was getting to where I was getting to and I was okay being a couple minutes late. And I called April and I said, I just want to tell you that that question you asked me on that podcast has been sitting with me and that I just realized I've changed my mind on it. And she was like, she was floored. I'm so glad you told me. I have no idea. Wow, really? Like, yep, here's why. Here's the path that I followed of that idea, like the little trail that I think it took in my mind and this other conversation I had and this other one. And I've decided that actually, you know what? This is where I am. I'm here now. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, it was a really cool moment. And I realized I want to do that again. I want to let people know when they've, when they've impacted me and I want to do it with excitement instead of shame. Oh, yeah.
0: So I'd like to, um, uh, just ask you a couple of questions, um, <laughs> about that people have asked, um, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were two questions which I thought were rather good and I'm interested in hearing the answer to myself. Um, the first one is someone asks, um, are there, are there any guests you would refuse to have on the braver angels podcast and on what criteria? Mm. I,
1: I think so. Uh, but I mean, there, there would be guests that I would, I would advocate against having on the podcast, but then I would have to have conversations with my colleagues at braver angels and listen to them. Right. And then together we would come to some understanding. Um, Sometimes I get that question in the form of are there ideas, right, that you think are just beyond the pale and people who hold those ideas should never be listened to. And that's where I'm like, no. Cuz cuz for me, for me again, I put people at the center, not ideas. Um mm-hmm. and in my career, I've interviewed people who have done and have believed some very unsavory things. Uh but my job is to help society understand itself and not listening to people who have done unsavory things uh sort of cloaks some pretty important part of society. So I, I don't really believe in that just on principle. Um, but, but yes, I, you know, for the Brave Angels podcast in particular, and again, I do not speak for, I am not the authority on the podcast. It's a collaborative effort. So I want that to be clear. Uh, but for something like the podcast, I think that a person that I would be very hesitant to have on is someone who has a demonstrated history of uh, hostility And and uh, toward other people of different beliefs, Uh, I mean, like demonstrated raw, rash, so much hostility. Um, Mm. You know, um, but even then, I I don't. Even then, I'm not sure that I would completely lock them out. I I think what I would want to do is is have a conversation about that and just say find some way, right? Because. I don't know. It's like, maybe it's personal, but my curiosity just knows, knows no bounds. And I, I want to know why, why they, they got to that place and, and see what's up. But chances are that person wouldn't ever want to come on the Brave Angels podcast anyway. So this honestly hasn't even been a problem. <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think I, I like that. I like that kind of openness. Um, I mean, I'm a very strong believer in free speech mm-hmm. and I'm not, just a believer in free speech because I I I do think that the marketplace of ideas works on a very long time scale, not on mm-hmm. a short or kind of medium term time scale. Um, but also because I just think knowledge is good for its own sake.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Uh, yeah. You know, there there are risks to freedom and risks to knowledge, but it's just. It's just a good thing in itself to know what's out there and to hear yeah. people.
1: Yeah, and I and I do want to add, you know, one level of complexity, too, to that answer is, you know, media, as you know, is about what's interesting, right? It's about most, most media folks who know what they're doing or, you know, try to learn uh, wouldn't produce something that they think just serves no good purpose at all. Uh, so, you know, th- there's also kind of like, Gosh, it's, it's hard to name an example without, without then inviting listeners, you know, to download in their minds, all kinds of things that I can't really see, um, and, and sort of contend with, but so maybe I should keep it in generalities, but I I can imagine all kinds of you know, we at Braver Angels, we we look at the divide, right? And we're trying to have conversations across that divide about very tough issues. So we had a debate about abortion. We have a debate about sex work coming up. We've had debate about vaccine mandates, you know, all the tough stuff. But we do it about the tough stuff that is truly at a, at a big, thick fault line in society where there is a lot mm-hmm. of people on one side, a lot of people on the other, right? I don't see us suddenly getting really curious about something where there's just like a handful of of people who believe something that then everyone else, you know, you know what I mean? Like there is such a thing as true deviance to me that just becomes like, no, we're not going to interview someone who thinks they can jump off a roof and fly. You know what I mean? So like, are there some beliefs that, that, you know, many would say are just completely immoral and fall into that category for us? Yeah, I think so. Um, Yeah. If there there has to be like a good reason why it's part of the divide, a divide that we need to understand better. And and they're big ones and they're big tough issues in that, and we can't shut the door to that.
0: Sure. I mean, I think there is value in talking to these those kinds of uh cranks and conspiracy theorists and people with really weird uh beliefs. And I people like John Ronson and Will Storr have spent a lot of time investigating that, but your aim is I mean your aim at Brave for Angels, you also have a practical aim, which is to um, to make people less polarized over political issues. Right. So you are not, for example, going to have a two-hour conversation about, um, I don't know, um, about chess, for example, right, on your exactly. It's, like,
1: it's got to fit the purpose and the mission, right? So we're not going to do something that seems <laughs> just not to do that. But for example, you know, we had a very controversial uh, debate very early this year about voter fraud. And um, a lot of a lot of our blue sort of liberal members had a huge problem with our even entertaining the thought, you know, Uh, but the reason we did it anyway is like, look, this is a this is a big set of concerns and doubts for many, many, many Americans and ignoring or not having the conversation. Uh, leaves a leaves a lot of um, leaves a lot of room unexplored and and a lot of potential common ground not never found and potential waves forward never creatively um, arrived at so why would we do that to ourselves now that that is a very very big controversy I can't tell you how controversial that was right but but like braver angels I I take very seriously and the organization takes very seriously the word brave <laughs> you know like we know yeah. there's a lot of people that would rather that certain issues that seem to them extraordinarily harmful and deviant on the other side, they would rather we just stop talking about it because again, it's all about winning. Right. And so the way to win is to just make them shut up. The problem is that will never work. That will never work. Even if, even if it's the right, you know, even if one side is ultimately more right on the thing, that's just, I just, no one has ever convinced me when you play that out, that that will work. It's very short-term thinking in my mind. I, somebody has to explain how that will actually be good for us. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I suppose if people have in their minds, well, these people are just idiots. They just need to be handed information. Well, okay, if that were true, then I understand. Then I understand that, you, okay, you just think if we just stop talking about it, those idiots will just, I don't know, get bored and move around. That is not how people work. That is not respecting other people in America, in that way w- that we see that they are full and rich and mysterious human beings. Like, enough of this, you know what I mean? Like, we gotta stop. <laughs> it's just silly. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I, and I mean the I, as you say in the book an, a number of times, and I think this is one of the central themes in the book. I and mean, you don't, it, it, the book is not repetitious. I didn't mean to suggest that, but <laughs> something that is thematic in the book is that. Um, People really, really want to be heard and they want to have their concerns heard. Right, And um, it will go a long way towards persuading them, not necessarily persuading them of your opinion, but at least getting them to work together with you, which is what you need in politics. Um, If they if they trust you because they feel you're actually listening to what they care about and what they are worried about and what they value, rather than scolding them for not having the same concerns you have or valuing the same things you value.
1: Right, exactly. And in fact, you asked earlier about questions that um, get me to open up, or questions that I've asked that get other folks to open up, and and one of the questions that I think is most powerful for this, and I, and I do mention it in the book, and even since I you know finished the book, uh, it really keeps coming up. Is what are your concerns? What what concerns you about this? What are you worried about? And asked with real curiosity, you will you will learn so much asking someone that question. You will learn loads you know and and part of the trick too to asking a question like that is not to jump in as soon as you hear one little answer uh what what i see happen a lot is people will begin from a, w- in a place of curiosity and they'll ask a question and then as soon as someone says something that that concerns them they'll jump in right and then curiosity stops i mean you you, you open the faucet for about three drops and then you're done no <laughs> you've got to actually let people answer the question fully fully you know what concerns you about voter fraud about the you you have you, it sounds like you're worried that voter fraud really happened in this election um tell me tell me your concerns overall that that come from this you know from this from this sort of in, uh, uncertainty and then they they give you some stuff and then what you say next is anything else can you tell me more you sum it back up to them so you're concerned about you know this and i heard you about this and this Anything else? I I just I'm you know I'm really curious. I want to hear kind of more, and then what you get is a fuller picture. Um, Because again, we're we're just so ready to jump on things, and what we get is a little cartoon sketch, which is so much easier to caricature, right? You you just let people start talking, and then you you shut them up, and then you jump on whatever they said. What that's not curiosity, right? So it's not just the question; it's the follow through. You you have to if you ask that question, that's a commitment. That's a commitment on your part. And if you don't fulfill that commitment, then that person is not going to answer your next curious question with trust. Right? So uh, it's a whole life cycle here.
0: (laughs) And it's difficult. It's very difficult. Mm. Yeah. So there's one more question that was asked on Twitter, which I also want to hear your answer to, uh, which is, um, what had to be trimmed that you wish you could have left in? Or what are you, uh, are you planning a second book? And uh, if so, is there, is, are there themes that didn't come up in this book, but that you'd like to tackle in the future?
1: Yeah. So as far as what got trimmed, so there's a chapter. Um, it's it's probably my favorite chapter. It's, um, it's heavy uh, on storytelling and it has to do with, Uh, a very impactful trip that I helped organize where about 20 Seattleites went down to a place called Sherman County, Oregon, a very rural county in Oregon and how the trip happened and why. And, uh, it's changed my life, that trip. Um, I, uh, the relationships that, that started there, you know, it was an urban rural divide and a liberal conservative divide and, all kinds of things it was this big risk it was this big experiment and there there there's so much to it and i had to trim back quite a bit uh from that chapter because ultimately this book is um you know like exploring a kind of a reframe on uh on conversation and how we approach different perspectives and, and and how we do it well and together and how it makes us see the world that we're pretty blind to, thanks to all these awful divisive dynamics. Um, but man, like there's so much more, uh, there's so much more I want to say uh, about, about what was learned there and uh, everything that's come out since. That makes me want to write another book that is more about, that is a, a, a bigger collection of stories. Uh, so since I joined Braver Angels and, and, and even before, I've become, you know, more privy to, uh, I'm a little bit of sort of a confessional booth, right? Where people, people are sharing with me these deep traumas uh, within their families over political division, uh, these deep challenges. And for as much as Braver Angels, you know, we're trying to provide tools and whatnot, like we're just getting started, right? And some people for some people, these challenges are just like a perfect storm. You know, not only is it this, but it's also this and this and this and this. And it's like, ah, and, and what I've, what I've um, really become inspired by is there are so many people around the country who, instead of feeling helpless or resigned, are doing something Right, and maybe it's through Brave Angels tools, or maybe it's through something else. Whatever, but they bring it to their lives, and they make a difference, and they have an impact on the people around them. And again, these are quote small stories. They're not happening at scale. They're not viral on Twitter, so no one knows about them. But they're there, and they're incredible. They're extraordinary. And so, uh, I think the next book would be something, something like that, because you know it's one thing to have the reframe and the tactics and I'm providing as many models as I can, including from many of these stories are already in the book. Right. But, but, but there's so much more wisdom out there and some really deep challenges and people are still a little bit like afraid of sharing these stories. So I really, really want, I really want us talking more openly about this stuff. I think that's, I think that's what's going to make the difference. I'm really looking forward to that book. Yeah, I got to write it. I got to write. When am I going to do that? Iona.
0: When? I I don't know. <laughs> it's so much to do. <laughs> it's not fair is it? That when you've just finished writing a book, people are already asking you about the next book. I know. Like, well, I think it's lovely. Off. Let me have a rest. <laughs> <laughs> That's true.
1: I do feel like I need to rest for a while because man, it it did. It it took a lot out of me and um but I'm really I'm really proud of it and but not in that way, not in that way that I think I have all the answers. Here, everybody, here's my, here's the answer. This is going to save you. No, you know, but, but I, I am, I am proud that I think I managed to articulate some things that I think are powerful and that I have felt through my path uh, and through the things I've seen and the people I've met and their stories. And, and I, I have, I have it packaged and I am excited. I'm excited to see uh, how the world, you know, how readers add to it, question it, challenge it. Um, and I want to know if I'm wrong. I want to know where I'm right. I want to know where I'm wrong. I want to know what people think. Um, because we do this together, right?
0: Yeah. 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 I, um, so finally, this is something I ask all my guests, but mm-hmm. is there anything you wish that I had asked you or something that, uh, to- something that you would have liked to have brought up that I didn't give you a chance to talk about?
1: Oh, that's a great, I love that question too. I love, yeah,
0: that's also one of my favorites.
1: Um, well, I suppose I'm thinking very internally because uh, these kinds of wonderful interviews are also chances for me to explore the places that I want to explore, right? And so um, my relationship with my parents and how we've been able to uh, talk about some really tough stuff is something I'm still, I wrote the book in part to try to understand it. Like, how is it that we've been able to do this and somehow survive? And, and, and uh, many others uh, just run into a lot of blocks. I, I want to understand that so that, so that I can help unblock others. Right. Um, so that's something that I'm endlessly fascinated by, like at a really, really deep level. Um, I'm also like the thing maybe that I'm most, uh, uh, vulnerable, almost insecure about, you know, that I almost want more, like more challenges about is for, uh, for partisans, you know, on either side who, who really do truly a hundred percent believe like, man, the people on the other side are destroying everything, you know, and, and they might be plagued by, I think a, a lot of misperceptions, seeing that the monster as much more monstrous than it probably really is. But even so, um, you know it the partisans f- folks who who really deeply believe some things that lead them to expe- be deeply suspicious and and want to vilify the other side of this divide they like they they are coming at this with all the right instincts and reasons you know they they have like they have deep convictions about how this country moves forward right and and they are spending time and fighting for a better country and um and I respect that and honor that. And society needs needs that that piece of itself to be very empowered, right? Everything needs to stay in check, but still like very, very empowered. So it is it is my belief, right, that the, the sort of checks on that um, haven't been as effective, which is why things feel so toxic right now. But at the same time, we are going through a, a lot of high stakes issues, potentially very high stakes, you know? No one can say that 30, 40 years from now, we're not going to look back at this time and, and go, oh my gosh, there should have been just some kind of war. We should have not been talking and we just should have gone to war. No one knows the future, right? And some people are very scared and I don't know that we're not on that path. So anyway, so I, I'm still I'm still wrestling with, um, I guess I'll leave it there. I, I'm really wrestling with with how, Everybody plays their role more curiously uh, Mm. while still keeping their fight, you know, while still being themselves because we've all got to continue to be ourselves. Right. We have to trust at the end of the day that this mix of people is the right mix of people because because there's just
0: that that, this is who we have. So, yeah, (laughs) I guess I'll leave it there. That's that's a fantastic place to end on. Thank you so much for joining me, Monica. Thank you for having me, Iona. This was wonderful. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well. Stay happy and have a wonderful week.